Good morning, Covenant College. It's good. You have heard us talk a lot about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The celebration of world Protestantism that we will be celebrating together next week. I hope you're getting the idea that we at Covenant College think that it's a big deal. Because we at Covenant College think that it's a big deal. Here to continue, I think we do, uh, here to help us continue to think about our Reformation heritage um, in our series, Reform for What, is another member of our esteemed faculty, Dr. Tim Morris. <laughs> Dr. Morris, is a 1983 graduate of Covenant College. He holds a PhD in biology from the University of Florida and has taught in our biology department here at the college since 1993. He is Lisa's husband, and together they are the parents of five children. Two of them are Covenant College alumni, and one of them, Joey, is a senior. I don't know if a lot of you are aware of this, but among scholars nationally, Dr. Morris has uh, been among the most thoughtful voices in the conversation between science and faith during, during the past uh, 15 to 20 years. Um, as his students know well, Dr. Morris is a great gift to Covenant College. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Morris this morning. Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you. I'd like to start by reading uh, from Ephesians 1, chapter 1, uh, 3 through 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Uh, that was planned there in the Reformation. They did have to just yell, so it works out all right. Let's, let's pray. Lord, you have truly lavished the riches of your grace upon us. 
may we truly be your sons and daughters for the praise of your glory. Amen. All right, I'm honored uh, to participate in this series, Reformed for What? Only a week or so before the actual 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Surely God used the Reformation to reaffirm and reemphasize truths of the gospel that had been entrusted to the church from the beginning. The five solas capture the heart of the Reformation movement. I don't intend to review these systematically, but you will see that they show up in this talk. In fact, they already showed up in the passage from Ephesians 1 that we just read. I should say also as we begin that though the Reformed tradition has played a major role in shaping my life before the Lord, and I'm very thankful for it, I certainly don't believe that this tradition is the only true Christian tradition, though I do believe that it is truly Christian. I really like how C.S. Lewis emphasized the unity in Christian belief, yet insisted on the necessity, the necessity of distinctive Christian traditions for faithful Christian living. In the preface to Mere Christianity, he writes, I hope no reader will suppose that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds of the existing communions, as if a man could adopt it, mere Christianity, in preference to congregationalism or Greek orthodoxy or anything else. It, mere Christianity, is more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into the hall, I shall have done what I attempted, in the book he wrote. But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. For that purpose, the worst of the rooms, whichever that may be, is, I think, preferable to the hall. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which one pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness there? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at a door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? When you have reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. Wise words, I think. So today, I'm simply reflecting on just a few of the ways that, by God's grace, I've found good company, warm fires, inviting chairs, nourishing, rich, energy-filled meals in this strange and wonderful expression of the Reformed tradition here at Covenant. I have three brief reflections oops, uh, in response to the Reformed for what theme of the series. Reflect a bit on Reformed for living and responding to all of life as worship. Reformed for confidence and humility in our callings. Reformed for, refaith for faithful attentiveness and truthful naming in our disciplines. So first, reformed for living and responding to all of life as worship. The tradition is well known for the way it pushes back at our human instinct toward a tightly compartmentalized sacred-secular dualism. The tradition forthrightly embraces the deeply biblical teaching that all of life is to be lived quorum Deo before the face of the Lord as worship 
because worship is the only response appropriate to the great works of God. As Colossians 1 teaches us, Jesus is at the center of all the great works of God in history. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus is the creator, redeemer, sustainer, and completer of it all. And worship, worth-ship, to put it another way, worship is embracing and celebrating the worthiness of God in all his ways, in all his works, and certainly there is no sacred-secular divide in that. Another gift of the tradition that especially encourages me in the all-of-life-is-worship vein is the multifaceted component of common grace. I was recently reminded of this by my granddaughter, May, who has just turned turning four today, actually. Happy birthday, May. And who, at the time, was living just a couple of blocks away from me in St. Elmo. We often walked back and forth between her house and mine, and our route happened to go by Brian and Jill Fickert's home. Over time, May got to know Mr. Fickert, as she called him, as we would see him working in the yard or just arriving or just leaving uh, the home. And as those of you who know Brian, he doesn't miss a chance to say something outrageous to little kids to see how they respond. And so the usual drill as we passed uh, the Fickrit's house, as May and I did, she would say, there's where Mr. Fickrit lives. He's a funny man. <laughs> I would say, yeah, that's right. But then the conversation would usually move to Kuiper, the Fickrit's devil cat. Now, May loves all kinds of animals and is somewhat taken aback when an animal does not return the love. And Kuiper, Kuiper does not return the love, and in fact scratched May pretty good on one occasion. So not long ago, we were walking by, and she said, there's where Mr. Fickrit lives. Pause. He's a funny man. Pause. Kuiper scratched me. Slight scowl. And then brightly, but he didn't bite me. <laughs> and of course, I had to tell her that this was an example of common grace. <laughs> that God restrains to various degrees the evil we creatures would do if left to ourselves. And for about two weeks after that, every time they passed the Fickert's house in the car, she yelled to her mom to stop because she had to go tell Mr. Fickert, common grace. So she remembered. So now, whenever I see yet another example of God's restraining common grace, I say to myself, but he didn't bite me. It's helpful. Needless to say, my daily life has been immeasurably enriched by the tradition's expansive view of the work of Christ and his multifaceted common grace. Second reflection, reformed for confidence and humility in my callings. And I'm going to start with Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 9. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today, that I give you today, are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, these mottos are certainly not commands of God, but they are powerful reminders of God's work in our life through Christ. So rather than tie one on my hands or forehead, I had one tattooed on my shoulder. Sorry, you have to see this. Now, it would be fun to say that I got this tattoo last week to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, but actually, it goes back to my 50th birthday some years ago. And it connects in part to one of my little sea callings, teaching biology here at Covenant. So turning 50, a half a century, was an occasion for some reflection on God's goodness to me, certainly in my salvation by grace alone, and as, uh, as mentioned earlier, we Reformed folks believe in grace strong and free and comprehensive and lavish. And I had recently finished a book project with Don Petra called Science and Grace, and I felt truly blessed as I look back on those 50 years. But notice it doesn't just have the motto. It's actually personalized by a little double helix and the specific DNA sequence C-A-C-A-G-T-G. -G. Can you see that on there? So considering this sequence of DNA in terms of grace, the unmerited favor of God, works in a number of ways. This sequence of seven nucleotides is found on chromosomes 2, 7, 14, and 22 and is an essential component of your ability to fight off infections and to become immune to various pathogens. These sequences help orchestrate a shuffling of the genetic deck in specific cells so that you are able to respond specifically to over 100 million different pathogen components. So praise God for his grace in this, and praise him for allowing humans to grasp it. So uh, next time you're really tired, you can't think of what to pray, then just pray C-A-C-A-G-T-G, and God will know what you're talking about. But related to my little C calling in biology, it takes on a little bit more personal meaning in the spring of my sophomore year, which would have been the spring of 1981, I enrolled in a microbiology course taught by Dr. John Lothers here at Covenant. Up to that point, I had been a biology major, but truth be told, it was more by the process of elimination. I didn't want to be any other kind of major. And aside from vague directions in terms of something healthcare-related, I didn't know uh, where it was headed. Then Dr. Lothers did a unit on immunology, study the body's defenses, and I was hooked. Specifically, it was the exquisite solution only recently worked out as to how all the diversity of the immune response was generated that drew me in. The answers gradually emerged from the work of Susumu Tonegawa, for which he won a Nobel Prize in Physiology 1987. And the sequences that he discovered and, and worked out their function, you can see my CA, CA, GTG in there, right? Um, were uh, amazing stuff to me. Uh, before his work, nobody had the faintest idea how we could produce 
the power of the immune system. And after understanding what the problem was, and by God's common grace, what Tonegawa's solution was, I knew I wanted more of that kind of stuff. And this experience was what led me to graduate school and ultimately down the path leading to my little C callings today, one of which is to regularly teach a whole course in immunology, grace alone indeed. So sometimes, gifts, callings, and opportunities all come together. Praise God for that. But sometimes it's not so tidy or so comfortable. I was reminded of this recently by a little video of my granddaughters. You see a theme emerging here, talking about my grandkids. Uh, May was given a little C calling. If I can bring this up. Uh, May was given a little C calling to entertain her sister, Lana, who's about 16 months old, while her mother was getting dinner. Now, we've always told May that she's good at dancing, and Lana seems to think so as well. But May thought something in addition to dancing was called for, and I want you to see that. Pretty good. Okay, what a, what a blessing, the, the grandkids. All right. But uh, right after the second tumble, you guys couldn't hear it, but this is what she said. I'm just not that good at leaping, Lon. And then she got up and went right on, right? She went on pursuing her little sea calling. Didn't miss a beat. So... May God bless you and some little sea callings with some little sea callings that do align with your major areas of giftedness. But remember, his callings come not primarily for your satisfaction or my satisfaction and fulfillment, though that's a pretty easy spin for us as Americans to put on it. No, his callings come primarily for the work of the kingdom, service which makes Christ's rule more visible, not which make me and my gifts more visible. May's forthright admission, well, I'm just not that good at leaping, Lon, didn't make her shrink back from her calling. Sola gratia in terms of our calling means that we can have confidence and humility that is neither a triumphalism nor a despair as we work out our, all our callings, knowing that it is God at work, not just our gifts. As Philippians 2, 12 to 13 recommends us, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose, maybe in this case of entertaining Lana. By his grace alone, he will bring his purposes to pass in and through our actions. All right, now the third little reflection. Reformed for faithful attentiveness and truthful naming in our disciplines. So I want to reflect a bit on the Reformed emphasis on our identity with Christ. 
our union with the creator and redeemer, sustainer and completer of it all. Scripture speaks often, as it did in the passage from Ephesians 1 that we opened with, of the fact that we as believers are in him and he is in us. It is referred to as a mystical union because its nature, means, and implications are not precisely defined in Scripture. Nonetheless, this major theme in the New Testament indicates that in some way, union with Christ involves our spirits and our bodies. It is tied throughout our lives to our spiritual lives and also our resurrection and glorification. And in some fashion, this mystical union indicates that we actually share in the experiences of Christ and he in our experiences. I'll make my way back to this, but by a bit of a circuitous route. First, my discipline of biology derives its name from the Greek bios, life, and logos, words, or discourse about, words about. So what does the logos root remind you of? Well, of course, the, the logos in John 1. There's a certain sense in which Jesus, the logos, is the ultimate source of all the logos tasks of the discipline of biology. Second, I've come to think of what we call modern science as involving a specialized kind of attentiveness to the created order. There are other ways of being attentive, for example, in the hearts, in the arts and the humanities. In other times and places, ways of being attentive to the creative order, created order different, were different from modern science and were nonetheless faithfully practiced. In our time, though, what we call modern science is the dominant style of being attentive to creation. And of course, in being attentive, we humans in general and more intentionally and in, in intense ways, we Christians are following the example of the one whose image we bear and the one we love. A quick look at the nature psalms, such as Psalm 65, Psalm 104, Psalm 145, show his deep love and focused attentiveness on all the edit that he has made. And finally, I've come to think of what we do in biology as a discipline, and I think it in the various disciplines represented here, as a form of naming. So now what does naming make you think of? Well, for starters, Adam naming the animals. So I think that the sciences, not only in descriptions, but also in its explanations and theories, is a kind of naming, being obedient to the cultural mandate, following the example of the other elder brother, Adam, that we see in Genesis 2, 19 and 20. Now, Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, what he would, I'm sorry, what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. In this scenario, God is the author of the created order. He created the animals in their various forms. Yet when he brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them, Adam had a role to play in the naming, in the name of the one who called him. It doesn't appear to be some kind of game, God having already given the right names to the animals and Adam trying to guess them. It would be strange indeed if Adam worked at his task by trying to recreate in his own mind 
what God was thinking when he created, rather than to look at the characteristics of the animals themselves to determine what seemed to him to be appropriate names. It would also seem incongruous if the first thing Adam did to begin his task was to try to forget or set aside his knowledge that God had brought these animals into existence and was the one who had brought them to him. He wasn't saying to himself, let's see, if God didn't exist and if the world and if he didn't act in the world, then what would I call this animal? Methodological naturalism was not part of his science style. One doesn't get the idea from the passage either that Adam willy-nilly named the animals in terms of any random impulse that popped into his mind. Naming that was somewhat arbitrary, having nothing to do with careful attentiveness to the actual animals brought to him, would have also been a strange response to the task God had given him. In following Adam's example, then, Christians must develop perspectives on the disciplines that take seriously God's call to obediently receive knowledge of the world as it is given, but also to obediently find joy in the God-given responsibility to work attentively at naming truly as seems best to us. So in the discipline, in a sense, developing and learning the technical language of the discipline is naming, Developing equations and using them is naming. Doing the primary research, consolidating the general themes, learning and critiquing the theories and consensus explanations. That is, all the work of the discipline is a kind of naming. Now to circle back to the centrality of our identity in Christ for our work in the discipline. So if our work in our disciplines if in our work, in our disciplines, we are faithfully attentive to our, in our creaturely state in ways that reflect divine attentiveness, and if we logos or discourse in a fashion that points to the logos, and if we name in our own creaturely way in the name of Jesus, that is, if we name truly, then we can be assured that our work is not in vain and that his work in and through us will not return void in the coming day of the Lord. And we can say with the psalmist in our disciplines, in him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. That's from Psalm 33. So I'd like to end with you standing with me, and let's read together. Philippians 2, 3 to 11, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's read this together. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow,
in heaven and on earth, and every tongue and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And you are dismissed. Praise God for who all blessings